Part two of My School Days by E. Nesbitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part two Long Division. I spent a year in the select boarding establishment for young ladies and gentlemen at Stamford, and I venture to think I should have preferred a penal settlement. Miss Fairfield, whose school it was, was tall and pale and dark and I thought her as good and beautiful as an angel. I don't know now whether she was really beautiful, but I know she was good. And her mother, dear soul, had a sympathy with small folly and disgrace, which has written her name in gold letters on my heart. But there was another person in the house, whose name I will not put down. She came continually between me and my adored Miss Fairfield. She had a sort of influence over me, which made it impossible for me ever to do anything well while she was near me. Miss Fairfield's health compelled her to leave much to Miss mm, and I was, in consequence, as gloomy a cynic as any child of my age in Lincolnshire. My chief troubles were three—my hair, my hands, and my arithmetic. My hair was never tidy. I don't know why. Perhaps it runs in a family for my little daughter's head is just as rough as mine used to be. This got me into continual disgrace. I am sure I tried hard enough to keep it tidy. I brushed it for fruitless hours, till my little head was so sore that it hurt me to put my hat on. But it would never look smooth and shiny like Katie Martin's, nor would it curl prettily like the red locks of Sissy Thomas. It was always a rough, impossible brown mop. I got into a terrible scrape for trying to soften it by an invention of my own. As we all know, Burley House is by Stamford Town, and in Burley Park we children took our daily constitutional. We played under the big oaks there, and were bored to extinction, not because we disliked the park, but because we went there every day at the same hour. Now, Harry Martin—he wore striped stockings, and was always losing his handkerchief suffered from his hair almost as much as I did. So when I unfolded my plan to him one day in the park, he joyfully agreed to help me. We each gathered a pocket full of acorns, and when we went to wash our hands before dinner, we cut up some of the acorns into little bits, and put them into the doll's bath with some cold water, and a little scent that Sissy Thomas gave us, out of a bottle she had bought for twopence, at the fair at home. This, I said, will be acorn oil, scented acorn oil." "'Will it?' said Harry, doubtfully. "'Yes,' I replied, adding confidently, "'and there is nothing better for the hair.' But we never had a chance of even seeing whether acorns and water would turn to oil, a miracle which I entirely believed in. The dinner-bell rang, and I only had time hastily to conceal the doll's bath at the back of the cupboard where Miss hmm, kept her dresses. That was Saturday. Next day we found that Miss Hm's best dress, the blue silk with the Bismarck brown gimp, had slipped from its peg and fallen on to the doll's bath. The dress was ruined, and when Harry Martin and I owned up, as in honour bound, Miss Fairfield was away in London. We were deprived of dinner and had a long psalm to learn. I don't know whether punishment affects the hair but I thought, next morning at prayers, that Harry's toe-crop looked more like bay than ever. 
my hands were more compromising to me than any one would have believed who had ever seen their size, for in the winter especially they were never clean. I can see now the little willow-patterned basin of hard, cold water, and smell the unpleasant little square of mottled soap with which I was expected to wash them. I don't know how the others managed, but for me the result was always the same—failure. And when I presented myself at breakfast, trying to hide my red and grubby little paws in my pinafore, Miss—hm, used to say, "'Show your hands, Daisy. Yes, as I thought, not fit to sit down with young ladies and gentlemen. Breakfast in a schoolroom for Miss Daisy.' Then Miss Daisy would shiveringly betake herself to the cold, bare schoolroom, where the fire had but just been kindled. I used to sit cowering over the damp sticks with my white mug. Mauve spotted it was, I remember, and had a brown crack near the handle, on a chair beside me. Sometimes I used to pull a twig from the fire, harpoon my bread and butter with it, and hold it to the fire. The warm, pale, greasy result I called toast. All this happened when Miss Fairfield was laid up with bronchitis. It was at that time, too, that my battle with compound long division began. Now I was not, I think, a very dull child, and always had an indignant sense that I could do sums well enough if any one would tell me what they meant. But no one did, and day after day the long division sums, hopelessly wrong, disfigured my slate, and were washed off with my tears. Day after day I was sent to bed, my dinner was knocked off, or my breakfast, or my tea. I should literally have starved, I do believe, but for dear Mrs. Fairfield. She kept my little body going with illicit cakes and plums and the like, and fed my starving little heart with surreptitious kisses and kind words. She would lie in wait for me as I passed down the hall, and in a whisper call me into the store-closet. It had a mingled and delicious smell of pickles and tea and oranges and jam, and the one taper Mrs. Fairfield carried only lighted dimly the delightful mystery of its well-filled shelves. Mrs. Fairfield used to give me a great lump of cake, or a broad slice of bread and jam, and lock me into the dark cupboard till it was eaten. I never taste blackcurrant jam now, without a strong memory of the dark hole of happiness, where I used to wait, my sticky fingers held well away from my pinafore, till Mrs. Fairfield's heavy step and jingling keys came to release me. Then she would sponge my hands and face, and send me away clean, replete, and with a better heart for the eternal conflict with long division. I fancy that when Miss Fairfield came downstairs again, she changed the field of my arithmetical studies, for during the spring I seem to remember a blessed respite from my troubles. It is true that Miss hmm, was away, staying with friends. I was very popular at school that term, I remember, for I had learned to make dolls' bedsteads out of matchboxes during the holidays, and my eldest sister's Christmas present provided me with magnificent hangings for the same. Imagine a vivid green silk sash, with brilliant butterflies embroidered all over it in coloured silk and gold thread. A long sash, too, from which one could well spare a few inches at a time for upholstery. I acquired many marbles, and much gingerbread, and totally eclipsed Sissy Thomas, 
who had enjoyed the fleeting sunshine of popular favour on the insecure basis of paper dolls. Over my memory of this term no long division cast its hateful shade, and the scolding my dear mother gave me when she saw my sash's fair proportions, docked to a waistband and a hard knot, with two brief and irregular ends, was so gentle that I endured it with fortitude, and considered my ten weeks of popularity cheaply bought. I went back to school in high spirits, with a new set of sashes, and some magnificent pieces of silk and lace from my mother's lavendered wardrobe. But no one wanted dolls' beds any more, and Sissy Thomas had brought back a herbarium, the others all became botanists, and I, after a faint effort to emulate their successes, fell back on my garden. The seeds I had set in the spring had had a rest during the Easter holidays, and were already sprouting greenly. But alas, I never saw them flower. Long division set in again. Again, day after day, I sat lonely in the schoolroom, now like a furnace, and ate my dry bread and milk and water in the depths of disgrace, with the faux commencements and those revolting sums staring at me from my tear-blotted slate. Night after night I cried myself to sleep in my bed, whose coarse homespun sheets were hotter than blankets, because I could not get the answers right. Even Miss Fairfield, I fancied, began to look coldly on me, and the other children naturally did not care to associate with one so deficient in arithmetic. One evening, as I was sitting, as usual, sucking the smooth, dark slate-pencil, and grieving over my troubles with the heartbroken misery of a child to whom the present grief looks eternal, I heard a carriage drive up to the door. Our schoolroom was at the back, and I was too much interested in a visitor, especially one who came at that hour, and in a carriage, to be able to bear the suspense of that silent schoolroom, so I cautiously opened its door and crept on hands and knees across the passage, and looked down through the banisters. They were opening the door. It was a lady, and Mrs. Fairfield came out of the dining-room to meet her. It was a lady in a black moray antique dress and paisley shawl of the then mode. It was a lady whose face I could not see, because her back was to the red sunset light. But at that moment she spoke and the next I was clinging round the moose skirts, with my head buried in the paisley shawl. The world, all upside down, had suddenly righted itself. I, who had faced it alone, now looked out at it from the secure shelter of a moiré screen, for my mother had come to see me. I did not cry myself to sleep that night, because my head lay on her arm but even then I could not express how wretched I had been. Only when I heard that my mother was going to the south of France with my sisters, I clung about her neck, and with such insistence implored her not to leave me, not to go without me, that I think I must have expressed my trouble without uttering it. For when, after three delicious days of drives and walks, in which I always had a loving hand to hold, my mother left Stamford, she took me, trembling with joy like a prisoner reprieved, with her. And I have never seen, or wished to see, Stamford again. End of part two